that we have um, a sister church in a city named Ducis, Haiti. And uh, we have had a sister church partnership with this church for over 20 years. In fact, we have sent a number of teams from the Village Church um, to D.C. Some of you have been actually uh, two, three, or four plus times over to deceased to be part of this um, partnership. And so the way it works is um, there's an organization that connects um, churches in Haiti to churches in the States. And what we do is we pray for our church. We encourage our church. They pray for us. They write us letters. Um, We send teams down as much as possible to build into them, serve them, and then um, just really get to know them as a church and love them. It's been an incredible relationship that we've had with um, this church, again, for over 20 years. And so um, many of you have known Pastor Moise. Pastor Moise has been the pastor for as long as I can remember. This is a picture of him and his wife. And uh, Pastor Moise has been, uh, as Haitian pastors go, one of the most um, uh, faithful men in the nation. He has an incredible reputation. He's uh, considered to be a leader even beyond just this church in their denomination. And uh, he has led with integrity and faithfulness for many, many years in a country where there are many opportunities to not do that. And uh, so we have counted it an absolute um, blessing and privilege to know him, uh, to be encouraged by him, uh, to see them in action, to see many, many families and kids come to Christ through the church that we sponsor through Hope for Kids, or I'm sorry, the school that we sponsor through Hope for Kids, and uh, really have loved his partnership. He's been having a number of physical just um, challenges and struggles. And uh, his denomination also has moved him from this church to another church. And so um, no longer is he going to be the the pastor of our sister church. And I want to read to you a letter that he um, wrote. And uh, he wrote it to the Village Church. It says this, "Um, We won't ever forget your time with us in Ducey's church. I want to thank you for all the prayers and support that you have given to my family. The love that you have manifested towards us is worth a lot in our lives. You have helped me grow spiritually in many other ways. Therefore, with regret, I want to let you know we might not be able to see you face-to-face again because I'm going to leave Deceased Church and go to go and lead another church in that mission that I work with, which is sending me. So if, if in any case we don't see each other on earth, we know that we will definitely see you in heaven, and I will continue to pray for you, and please do Likewise, And so in just a moment, I want to spend some time. We're going to pray for Pastor um, Moise. And again, um, can't stress enough how much his physical struggles have been um, really holding him back in terms of ministry and just a lot of physical suffering on a personal level for him. And I also want to introduce to you who our new pastor is going to be. And if you put that up there, uh, his name is French. And so I, I know I can say his first name really well. It's Yvonne. Uh, but Jacquet is the last name. And uh, Yvonne Jacquet. It sounds really cool when a French person says it. <laughs> sounds terrible when I say it. But he is 45 years old. His wife is 41. Her name is Dor- Dornard. I, I'm positive I'm botching that name up. I'm going to get it right. And, uh, but Yvonne is going to be our new pastor there. And we're very excited for him. He's been in pastoral ministry for um, over 15 years. He has a degree in theology. Loves the Lord. They have four kids. They adopted a 20-year-old. And then they also have a um, 13-year-old, 12-year-old and a seven-year-old. And uh, we're going to be sending teams, as you guys know, um, starting probably next year back to Ducis. And starting this August, um, Pastor Yvonne is going to be um, our point person there, and he's going to be the shepherd of this church and of the school that we support through Hope for Kids. So I want to just take a minute. We're going to pray for Pastor Moise and for Pastor Yvonne. Let's take a second. Father, um, first, I just want to thank you for Pastor Moise and 
his many, many years of faithful ministry to you and to the church in Ducis. Uh, Lord, that is such a hard, hard city and place to be faithful and to serve. Uh, Lord, I want to thank you that he has ministered your word and overseen this church with integrity. Uh, Lord, that he has been an example to pastors around the nation and in the denomination and to that city um, in very measurable and meaningful ways. I want to thank you, God, that he um, has persevered through many, many difficult seasons, through earthquakes and tragedies um, that most of us have never had to experience firsthand. Um, Father, I pray that as he transitions to this next season, that you would give him um, an incredible grace to endure. Um, Lord, as he suffers physically from different ailments, um, Lord, if there's um, any healing that can take place, God, I pray that you would bring resolution to these physical issues. But um, Lord, between that moment and this, would you give him the grace to endure? Um, Lord, I pray that as he transitions to this new church, that this new body that he gets to oversee and shepherd, um, that there would be unity there and that you would use him and his gifts and his integrity and his faithfulness to see another church and community um, uh, on fire for Jesus. Uh, Lord, as the Church of Deceits transitions to Pastor Yvonne, I pray that this transition would just be smooth. Um, it would be one that honors you, that as the um, world looks upon in the transition of authority, God, that um, they would see unity and peace that can only be found in Christ. Lord, I pray for protection for Yvonne and his children and his family and his ministry. Lord, this is a dark country with spiritual warfare that plays out in ways that we honestly don't see. Um, here in the same way. And so God, I pray that you would go before him and be with him and sustain him, um, that you protect him from attacks and protect his family, God, that he would be able to faithfully endure just as Pastor Moise has done um, for many years to come. And Lord, we look forward to just being an encouragement to him and to this church um, again for many years. I pray you would teach us what that means for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, if you would open up your Bibles with me, 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you don't know where the book of 1 Samuel is, Old Testament, go to the beginning of your Bible, table of contents. Uh, three weeks ago, we started this message, and this morning I'm going to finish it. And I want to give you a reminder of what we talked about three weeks ago. We were talking about the heart after God, and the heart after God provokes three responses in people. And the first response um, that the heart of God provokes in people um, is loyal love. And so when a Christian who loves God sees another Christian whose heart is after God, there is a connection point there that is unique and beautiful and profound. And so that when uh, you find somebody who has a heart after God, if you're a person who is, who is a Christian who has a heart after God, you find these people and you're just drawn to them in a profound way. We saw that David um, uh, was a young young man after God's own heart. And the king's son, Jonathan, older, the heir to the throne, um, was so moved by David's heart, um, he gave him his loyalty over his loyalty to his dad, who was the king. We saw a second group of people um, that if we have a heart after God, it will provoke respect. Um, this is in a group of people we'll call the quasi-religious. These are people who might have a Judeo-Christian ethic. They're not like obsessed about Jesus. They might identify as Christian or some kind of moralistic person. And, and if you are a person who has a heart after God, they're going to look at you. They're going to respect you. They're probably going to think highly of you. And the majority of people that we encounter are going to come in these first two categories. But there's a third category we're going we're to go deep today. And the heart after God incites irrational anger in a few. The heart after God will incite irrational anger 
in a few. Now, uh, we looked at the life of Jesus briefly, and we saw that um, his disciples were inspired to loyal love, even to the point of death, because of Jesus' heart. We saw that the people, the majority of the quasi-religious, looked at Jesus, and they had respect or admiration for him. But there was always this group of people who were small in nature, but their voice was so loud, and they made his life just so difficult. And it can just take one person in the right position of authority over your life who hates God, does not like your heart for God, um, and honestly, they can just make your life so difficult. Some of you have had firsthand experiences with this. It is frustrating, it is painful, and it tries you to the very core. Even though the majority of people in your life are either loyal to you because of your heart after God, respect you for it, there's always going to be somebody who you incite to irrational, illogical hatred. Um, And this is just part of the world. And and I want to go back with you um, all the way to the first act of rebellion. I want you to imagine, if you could, um, that you're sitting in the throne room of God, and you are in the presence of the most magnificent, spectacularly beautiful uh, thing you could ever imagine. God, in all of his splendor and in his glory, and you're so blown away by it, you fall on your face, but it's so intriguing that you peek up to look at it, and you put your face down, again. it's just mind-blowing, and it's mesmerizing, and you step back, and you say, I've never seen anything as beautiful um, as, as, as God. And yet, the same God that provokes in you this loyalty and this love and this admiration, somehow there's an angel in his presence, and this angel looks at the same thing, and he says, I hate you. I want nothing to do with you. I want to destroy everything you stand for. I stand opposed to you. And he's compelling enough that a third of the angels fall away and say, we hate you, we oppose you, uh, and we stand against you. Like, how is it that the same beautiful, mesmerizing God can have such um, a dividing effect in a room? And yet this is the beginning. And you and I, if we are going to be people of a heart after God, we will divide a room often. There will be the people who love God, love Jesus, and that's going to be the easy ones. But there will always be someone or these some people who are going to see that and because they hate God, they hate you. It doesn't make sense. It's illogical, but it's reality. It's what Jesus dealt with. It's what every single person in the Bible had to deal with. Somebody who hated their God and therefore hated them. I want to give you one word that I think perfectly summarizes 99% of this hatred. 99% of the people have this core issue, which is why um, they feel so strongly about people who um, uh, love Jesus. And I'll give you the word, we'll watch it play itself out, and it is simply this, jealousy. Now, I don't think they're able to articulate it. I don't think they're able to be clear about it, okay? Um, But there is, at, at its core, a jealousy. What did Satan want that God had? Power, position, control, sovereignty. He looks at him and he sees what he has. I think for actually um, many people, um, they hate your God because your ideology, your philosophy, your theology is a threat to their very way of life. It's a threat. They want power or control and they see you and your doctrine as a threat to that very existence. Um, They want something, they cannot have it, and they want ultimately, I think, what God has. 
Now, what we're going to do is we're going to enter into 1 Samuel 18. We started this message a couple weeks ago, and what we saw is that chapters 18 to 31 make up a portion of David's life called the exile of David, where he is running for his life from King Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, and this is called the exile of David. And what we found is that this exile, this season that God is purposely putting David in this season to kill the Saul that's inside of him, to weed out the sin that is going to make him do ridiculous things later. And so God is um, training him, transforming him, developing, and he does this by putting him in this season of exile and pain, uh, meanwhile, while Saul is on the throne. Now, we're going to start in verse 7. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7. And what has just happened here is David has just killed the mammoth gargantuan Goliath. And here's what David's victory effectively did. He preserved the Israelites from two things, extinction or slavery, one or the other. We don't know what the Philistines would have done to them, but they either would have killed every single person of the Israelites or enslaved them. Not only that, but there's a group of women who are particularly uh, grateful for this victory. Because this means not only do they get to keep their nation and their lives, but their men are coming home. It means their husbands, their sons, their nephews, their friends, their dads. Um, These ladies are very excited and they are celebrating, understandably so. And in verse 7, here's what it says. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And then verse 8 tells us the state of Saul's heart. And Saul was very angry. Now, before we read, I've learned that more times than not, I'm going to say 99% of the time, when you have somebody who's whining and complaining, it's rooted in jealousy. They want something that someone else has. Listen to what it says. And this saying displeased him. And he said, They've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. Like I imagine him being like a little baby boy, and so I'm like, I can't believe it. Uh, what more can he have but the kingdom? Now, yeah, he's angry, but there is such a little complainer inside of Saul. It actually is kind of annoying, and I think Samuel, as he records all this, wants you to see what's actually going on in the heart of Saul. Now, the next eight words are going to define David's life for the next decade until Saul dies. Says this in verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now, how many of you are actually counting to make sure that's eight words? It is, for real. I know. Some of you are like, it's one, two, that's eight words. Saul eyed David from that day on. I want you to see two things about Saul right here. And the first is simply this Saul is irrational. Here's what he should have done he should have come to grips with his lot in life, he should have come to grips. Uh, with the fact that his son is not going to be king. He should have come to grips that there is a successful young man whom it is clear is going to be the next king and come alongside of him and said, let me help you. Let me come alongside of you. Don't make the same mistakes I did. Um, God has already told me that, that my family and myself, we've lost this thing. Let me come around you and teach you what it means to lead well. That's what he should have done, right? But is that what he's gonna do? No, no, that's very often not what happens. Um, Here's what he does. He does the most irrational and illogical thing possible because that's what sin makes us do, illogical and irrational things. Sin messes everything up inside of us. I want you to just process this with me. 
Uh, we feel wrongly. We think wrongly. We perceive wrongly. We want wrongly. Ultimately, sin just makes us live wrongly. In fact, the very things that we say we want the most, like I want to be a man after God's own heart. I want to be pure. I want to be you fill in the blank. If you look at the actual decisions that we make many times, real time, those decisions do not move us closer to that end. Because what sin does is it deceives us and says, I'll get what I want now, even though I'm sacrificing what I really want later. Let me tell you, that is illogical and irrational. If I know who I want to be and the things that I want later, then I should do the things now that get me that. But sin creeps in our minds and says, no, postpone that. You deserve this now. You deserve this now. I want to be a man of purity. So what do we do? We mess around with our girlfriend or fiance or whatever. I want to be um, a man who is um, humble, right? So we overcompensate and we brag and we brag. And we do these things that actually accomplish the very opposite of what we want. What does Saul want? We're going to watch this play itself out. Saul wants God's blessing and God's support. That's what he wants. Saul wants God's blessing and God's support. And he cannot get it no matter what he does. And he sees this boy, David, who has God's blessing and his support. And it drives him absolutely mad. Drives him mad. And we're going to watch as God gives him over to this sin. And he's going to do um, really ridiculous things. In our, our home, we have what's called the no wine rule. Um, it's not W-I-N-E. Don't worry. We're not going to throw down a fight here right now. This is a W-H-I-N-E rule. And the rule simply goes like this. Girls, you don't get what you want when you whine. So my girls will whine. And I'll say, sweetie, do you ever get what you want when you whine? Well, no. Okay. Then logically, let's think about this. Then why did you whine? Because in our home, it goes like this. You whine once, it's done. Nothing. You don't get it. And we are trying to instill in our children, we do not grumble, whine, and complain. Just read the Old Testament. God does not think highly of it. He held the Israelites in in the wilderness for 40 years because they grumbled, right? And so we are trying to instill this value in our kids. And we say, logically, here's the deal, right? You don't get what you want when you whine. So what do they do? They want something, oh, but I want it so bad. Well, already you've lost. Like, does that make any sense to you? So let's, let's start over. Next time you want something, right? Next time you don't get what you want, what, what do you not do? Well, don't whine. Why? Because when I whine, I don't get what I want. So go up to my kids and say, hey, do, what do you get when you whine? Or do you get what you want when you whine? And they'll say, no, no. And I'll tell you, you know what? They're still, like, they still whine. And I'm like, it's illogical. But that's just a little microcosm. And then they turn up to be adults, and we still whine, right? So we have a rule in our church, which is, do you get what you want when you whine? No. And as soon as we give you what you want when you whine, what do we do? We enable you to be whiners, grumblers, and complainers. Anyways, number two. That was my little rant. Sorry about that. Um, Saul is irrationally jealous. Jealousy is wanting desperately what someone else has. Some jealousy is good. Um, God is ferociously jealous over you and your heart because he has rights to it. And when you give your heart or your affections or your love to things that aren't him, what do you provoke in him? Jealousy, right? You have a husband or a wife and the spouse gives their affection or their love or their body to somebody else. What does that provoke righteously so? Jealousy, understandably so. Most jealousy, though, that we experience is not so righteous. Let's be, let's be honest. And I want to look at Saul. I'd love to have a conversation with him and say, look, Saul, sometimes God asks people to kill thousands 
And sometimes he asks him to kill 10,000. Deal with it. Saul, or maybe for some of us, there are some people God wants to be rich, and there are some people he doesn't. God dispenses money. God gives to whom what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. So like, like you can be discontent and grumble and complain, or you can deal with the fact that God gives to whom he wants what he wants. And you can be content with where you're at, or you can grumble and complain, or you can whine. I think for many in our culture, especially the younger you are, um, here's the reality. God asks most people to do normal things, and he asks a few people to do big things. And if God looks at you, and at the end of your life, you say, I didn't do anything big, by your definition, you say, okay. God asks some people to do some things, and some people to do other things. And that's okay. And we have this script and we're so busy looking at other people and he wants what we want, what other people have. And it's like, be content, don't grumble, don't complain. And at the root of this is jealousy. Now, here's what happens. Um, Saul is getting angry. He's going to eye him for the rest of Saul's known life. And what we're going to get to in uh, chapter 18, verse 10, is we're going to start and we're going to look at two um, ways that I think God just creatively protects David in the midst of Saul's um, inner chaos. And the first thing that God does is he sends a demon to Saul. Look at verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God. Who is this from? God. Rushed upon Saul. So I want you to catch the intensity of this verb. The idea here is that this is like a ravenous like lion waiting to chomp at its prey. And it's like, let me go, let me go. And the God finally releases the leash and the lion goes after him. And so uh, rushed upon Saul. And he, Saul, raved within his house while David was playing the lion. I don't know what he was saying, but imagine your king, crazy, filled with a demon, raving back and forth, blah, 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 this and that. And David is brought in to play the lyre like a harp-like instrument to try to control him. And it says, as he did day by day, and Saul had his spear in his hand. Um, in chapter 19, verse 9, this happens again. And it says this, then a harmful spirit from the Lord, who's it from? The Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. So he's sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And the Lord sends um, an, a spirit to him, a harmful spirit, and David was also playing the liar. We'll see what he does with that. Now, I think for some of you, this is a category that is a little uncomfortable. And what I love to do is from the Old Testament, kind of blow up some of our um, categories of what God can and cannot do. And so I want to read to you a passage of scripture that I think gives incredible insight into what is happening behind the scenes. Like some of you are thinking, how could God do that? What would be possibly going through God's mind. And uh, you don't have to turn there, but the reference is 1 Kings 22, 19 to 22. And there's a prophet, Micaiah, and he's talking to King Jehoshaphat. And here's what he says. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. And he's going to give him a picture of what he saw. He gets a vision into the throne room of God. He says this, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts or the armies of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall or die at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. And so God um, alerts all of the angels of heaven. And he says, who, Who's going to make this guy fall and die? 
And they start grumbling. I don't know what a few, I'll say 100,000 or a million angels murmuring sounds like, okay? But you can imagine what's happening and they're talking amongst each other. One says one thing, one says another thing. And and then in verse 21, and um, many theologians would say that this spirit here that's going to step forward is Satan. It says this, Then a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And the spirit said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, this kind of takes your categories of what God can, should, and would not do, kind of pops them a little bit. And some of you are thinking, that's not fair or right. Why would he do that to Saul? And I think the first reason he can do that to Saul is because Saul is not his. Uh, So if I were to ask you a theological question, would God do this to a child of God? Your answer would be no. Now, the second thing is, well, the fact that God would even do that in the first place is not nice. And we live in a world where judges dispense punishments regularly and continually. And we don't ever look at a judge who dispenses punishments in this world and say, oh, that's not fair, or you have to pay that fine. Well, unless it's us, right? That's a different story. Um, And yet God is a righteous and perfect, just judge, and he dispenses punishments as he wills and as he wants. And I think one of the things that we have to get into our brain is that what God can do is much bigger than what we say or think he can do. That his sphere of um, deeds that are good and righteous might be a little bit more broad than what we are comfortable with. But when you stand before God, if you were to sit in heaven, no angel would be able to look at him and say, that is unrighteous. In fact, Um, What you will see if you got into God's mind, if you knew what God knew, felt what God felt, saw what God saw, is that you would do what God does every time. Because God never does anything that is not perfect and right every single time. And so these angels get back and they have the privilege of knowing what's going on in God's mind. And and they see it completely fit um, for God to allow Satan to approach him and then to send him down to Saul to torment him. And what's going to happen is at the end of the day, it's very sad, is that this um, harmful spirit is going to send Saul on a deeper and deeper downward spiral. Like we thought Saul's life was already dark enough, it's going to get even worse. It's going to get even worse. And so we find the first thing that God does is he sends um, a harmful spirit to Saul. Now this harmful spirit, we're going to watch this, because God is going to use the insanity that Saul goes through to put David on the path he wants him to be on, which is the path of exile. I want you to catch this. God wants David on the path of exile. God wants David to be fleeing and escaping his life because in this distance between his anointing and the time where he'll be appointed as king, God has to do a major transforming work in him to kill the Saul in him before that Saul kills him later on. And so God is eradicating all of this sin and this stuff in David because if God doesn't get rid of it, it'll kill David before David even realizes it. And so sometimes what we're going to see in your exile is that God is actually killing something in you before it kills you later. That's hard. But we get to um, chapter 18, verse 11, and we're going to watch as God thwarts nine malicious plans of Saul to kill David. Has anyone ever tried to kill you once? Most likely not. Let alone nine separate times. This is kind of crazy. What I want you to do in this section is I want you to just to enjoy the train wreck that is Saul's life, right? We all love watching a train wreck. So just watch this and step back and be like, apart from the grace of God, there go I. Now, we'll keep reading. Verse 11. And Saul hurled the spear 
For he thought, I will pin David to the wall. Is that the logical thought? No, that's irrational and illogical because sin makes us stupid. But David evaded him twice. And I read that and I thought to myself, okay, like, David, why don't you just leave the first time? It's almost like he throws the spear at him. He's like, huh, can we talk about this? Ah, no, right? No, David, just leave the first time. He's a crazy man. He's ranting. He's raving. Verse 12, Saul's response was this. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So what does Saul desperately want? What is he jealous for? God's blessing and God's support. Not only has he not received God's blessing and God's support, he's actually receiving the opposite, which is God's opposition. Number two, he tries to frontline David, meaning um, if in these times, a general doesn't sit back and tell everybody what to do. The general is leading by example out in front. This is certain death for David. So Saul, verse 13, removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah, they loved David, for he went out and he came in before them. What does Saul desperately, jealously want? God's blessing and God's support. And he's getting just the opposite. The third thing um, that Saul tries to do is distract or trap David. And here's what happens. Now Saul's daughter, her name is Michael, loved David. And she loved David with a loyal love, like Saul's son, Jonathan, and that their loyalty was to David and not their dad, the king, Saul. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, verse 21, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And then Saul said, said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. (laughs) That should be funny to you. That's, that's fun. That he may be avenged of the king's enemies. And now Saul thought to make David fall or die by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Well, to be the king's son-in-law. And before the time had expired, David arose and he went and along with his men. And they killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king. Somebody apparently counted these. Um, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Now, we're going to do an in-depth description of circumcision. Can you put the pictures up? I'm joking. We're not going to do that. It's not going to happen. I couldn't resist. That was too easy. Um, I'm sorry. That was, but there's no easy way to read this. Like for me, I'm a boy. I just laugh. I'm like, that's awesome. That's so hilarious. And um, I I imagine like the moment where he came in and he's like, here you go. Who's going to count them? And that's, it's weird. Anyways, sorry. I just, I'm a boy. It just happens. It's there. So Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. And listen to these words. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Just a little tip for you. If you see God as blessing and supporting somebody, don't make them your enemy. Because if God's blessing and supporting them and you make them your enemy, then therefore who is your enemy? God, right? Like, just consider that one a little bit. What does Saul desperately want? God's blessing and support. And yet here's what we see in this whole series of events so far. Who's with David? God. 
If you're David, does it feel like it? I don't know. I think when a spear is being hurled at your head and you're running for your life and escaping in the night and you're being frontlined um, to the battle, like, I think to me there might be a little discouragement here. I think when Saul dumped the oil on his head when he was a shepherd boy uh, and he had um, some time to think about what would it be like to be the king of Israel, I know it's going to happen one day. Like, do you think this is what he expected was going to happen? Do you think he expected that his life would be hunted down by the king? Did you think he expected a decade of exile, of hiding in caves, of being poor and running for his life and having spears thrown at his head? Like this, I don't care how you slice it, this is a letdown. This is not what he thought it would be. And yet, here's the deal. Who is God with? The whole world might look at Saul and say, he's the king, he's on the throne, he's in control, God's with Saul. But the reality is God is nowhere near Saul. He's with the dude in the cave. He's with the dude in the cave. And that, to me, is a huge, man, if we could just take that away. And I think at moments, David is probably stepping back and saying, where are you? And R.C. Sproul had a great quote. He said, God is never a bystander or impotent spectator in the events of human history, that he is intimately involved, and that David can step back and say, I don't understand this, but I know you're involved, and I know that it's for my good, and I know that what you told me is going to come to pass. And even though I don't understand how you're going to work all this stuff out, I trust you. Number four, Saul then decides he's going to contract kill David. Chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. So everybody go out and you take his life. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David. Now, you want to talk about loyalty? Okay? When you choose a boy, keep in mind, David is older than, Jonathan is older than David. He's the heir to the throne, and he's choosing loyalty over to this boy over loyalty to his dad. Jonathan gets something. Do not oppose the person God is for. Okay? That's just one-on-one. And uh, verse six, it says this. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore. Now, I don't know if he meant this. I kind of think he did because when somebody is in the throes of sin, they're illogical and they're irrational. Amen? You've seen it. And so maybe he just had this moment of good intentions. Maybe he's just lying. I don't know. But here's what he says. As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. Would you go back into Saul's presence? (laughs) David is just, I tell you, at every moment you look at David and you say, this is a man after God's own heart. He trusts God. He just trusts him. Number five, spear David again. And there was war again, verse eight. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David is playing the liar. David doesn't actually see these events happening. Uh, literally, David's playing the liar. Saul has a spear in his hand, and the Lord sends a spirit, a harmful spirit to him, while he's got the spear in his hand, right? This is, obviously, the Lord is setting something up. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. We'll try it again. Number six, surprise attack, David. 1911, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, loyal love toward the heart after God drives Saul insane. That doesn't work. So we'll try this. We'll contract kill him again. Number seven, chapter 19, verse 18. It was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. 
And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. It's like, okay, I have tried to kill this guy Eight times in eight different ways, and at every moment, the Lord is standing in the way. Finally, he's exasperated. Number eight, I'll just kill him myself. Verse 22. Then he said, then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Naoth and Ramah. And he went to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul also. As he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah, and he too, this is Utterly ironic and hilarious of God. And he too stripped off his clothes. And Saul too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? I mean, God is opposing and shaming and humiliating Saul the entire way. And you would think after eight tries, Saul would learn, don't kill God's anointed. (laughs) But he doesn't because sin makes us irrational and illogical. It makes us irrational and illogical. And finally, this last one is number nine. He finally tries to get to David through Jonathan. We're going to go to verse 20. Turn with me to chapter 20, verse 30. And I want you to see what um, we talked about last time. I want to just instill this, that the greatest friendships in life are rooted in three things. Shared experience, a trusted heart, and tested loyalty. Shared experience, trusted heart, and tested loyalty. Very few friendships get to this third point where, you know, we have some shared experiences, some common interests. We have a heart that is very similar with similar things. But when your loyalty is tested, this is where friendships are bound together in a powerful and profound way. And here's what happens in verse 30. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan because he wouldn't give up David. And he said to Jonathan, you son of a bleepity bleep woman, which is if you're actually reading it, that's how we're going to have to do it. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? Notice he doesn't ever say his name. He only calls him by the son of his dad, who is a poor shepherd. Into the shame of your mother's nakedness, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. The heart after God inspires both loyal love and irrational hate. I want to close with um, two quick things for you. The first one is for the Sauls. Now, many of you, most of you, are not probably thinking, oh, I'm Saul. Let me just paint a picture for who Saul isn't. Saul is not the atheist. Um, Saul is not the person who has been far away from church. Saul is the person who had God's word, had God's spirit, was with God's people, had God's prophet, Saul was a guy who spent enough time with Samuel that he probably had the right um, answers to the tough questions. Uh, He knew the right things to do. When the hard things came down to it, he had good advisors. God made it clear to him what he wanted. 
It wasn't like Saul was in some kind of place where it's like, oh, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. This is a guy who God had given every single opportunity to succeed. And so I would um, apply Saul's like this. Saul are those cultural Christians or maybe real Christians whom you have everything you need to do what God has asked you to do. You have God's word. You know what is right. You know what is right. Um, and you are tempted to forfeit what you truly want and substitute it for what gives you pleasure now. And over and over again, you're offered, you're asked to forfeit what you truly want and give yourself to these things right now. And the Saul in this room is the one who chooses to give themselves over to it now, to disobey what God's word says now, to postpone who they know they want to be and what they know they want to accomplish, and they give into this world of now. And here's what happens. The Lord comes to you and he says, if you're going to do this, I'm going to give you over to it. It's kind of the rhythm of the world right now. I love you. And part of my love, it's called discipline. So if you go down this path, I'm going to let you go. Just so you know that. And we know that. Like if you were to stop any person who's on the front end of rebellion and you look at them and say, will God give you over to this? They will say, yes, well, I know he will, but, 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 but we know that he will. And so here's what we do, right? We go, we choose the things, and God comes back to us and says, all right, I'm going to give you over a little bit more. So if you choose rebellion, if you choose the life of Saul here, I'm going to give you more over to this. And there gets to a point where now we're dealing with Saul who is way past just darkness. Now God is allowing demons to influence him and do crazy. He's on the deepest downward part of the irrational, illogical cycle of sin. He is at the very bottom. He is functionally insane, illogical, and irrational. And this is what happens when sin goes unchecked for a very, very long time. We become irrational and illogical. Then we step back and our lives are miserable and say, how could you let this happen to me? Right? That's, that's how stupid we are in those moments. How could you do this to me? And any logical person would say, sweetheart, friend, God didn't do this to you. You did this to you. You, you chose that. You knew what God's word said. You knew in those little decisions that you made over and over and over again, you knew exactly what God wanted. You walked down this path. Nobody forced you to do that. Nobody chose that for you. You did that. And God steps back and he's like, hey, I, I put it into the rhythm of the universe. I gave you the spirit of God, the word of God, the people of God, a church to grow up and all the other stuff, a mom and a dad or whatever, or friends or, or mentors. And everybody in the world was telling you from the time you can remember, here's what will happen. And so who chose this? And there's a warning here for the Sauls, which is uh, that God will, not happily, but will give you over. Now there's a passage of scripture that I think just so purposely um, Makes sense of this. James 4, 6 says, Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. Would you say Saul is fairly proud? Go with the yeah. But he gives grace to the humble. So if you're going to walk down that path, here's what you need to know. The Lord will let you, and you will get a stiff hand of opposition from him. Now, when you humble yourself, what is the Lord's response? Brings you back, arms open wide, says, let's start over. And it's harder. The more times you have to start over, the longer you go, the more difficult that process is. But he's a God of second and third and fifth and hundredth chances. Can you get an amen from anybody who's ever rebelled at all? Amen, amen. He opposes the proud and then gives grace to the humble. And for the Davids, I want to talk about this grace to the humble part of it. Um, the blessing of God, the presence of God, um, which is ironic that, that the king doesn't have the presence of God, the guy in the cave does, right? And we have to redefine now what does it mean to be or to have God's presence and blessing. 
Sometimes God's presence and blessing is he puts you in the cave in exile on the run, right? And we want to say, God, if you loved me, you'd make me happy and healthy and wealthy. And yet, is that the way God works? Let's be honest. No. And right now, some of you are in the exile, and you're saying, how could you let me do this? How could you let me be here? And, and what you don't know, maybe what I don't know, maybe what God will tell you one day is maybe right now what he's doing is he's killing something in you now that if he doesn't kill now, will kill you later. Maybe it's the grace and the mercy of God and that when you step back and you look at the arc of your life and on the day of judgment, he shows you everything that has happened, everything you did and what his intentions were, you'd look back and say, you're an absolute genius. I would have done that to me too. Like, you are so smart. You're amazing. Like, wow, the complexity, yet the love and the, the simplicity. Like, wow, Lord, you're a genius. And you navigated like 7 billion people simultaneously with such ease. And he's going to be like, I'm awesome, aren't I? I'm like, yeah, you're awesome. And we step back and we just look at this and we say, I trust you. And somehow the person who has God's blessing and support and presence is the one on the surface who's suffering. And so what I would just contend with you is that between David's anointing and his appointing is a period of transforming and suffering. And that we want something, but sometimes God has to kill something in us before we're actually ready to get that. So we step back and we look at this and we kind of have to reshuffle our categories and say, well, maybe my present circumstances is for my good. Maybe God's not an evil monster and he's actually doing something in me for my greater happiness, his greater glory, maybe. And I would contend that, again, if we knew what God knew, if we saw what God saw, if we felt what God felt, we would always, always allow the circumstances in our life that come to us we would always allow them because if we knew what God knew, we would do it every single time. Amen? My encouragement for you, don't be a Saul. <laughs> be a David. It's way better. It's way better. I want to ask the band to come up and we're going to close and worship God and pray. Um, Lord, uh, we are so silly. Um, we do such ridiculous, ridiculous things. I do. I don't understand why I forfeit what I really want for the temporary pleasure of now. So silly. God, when I've created my own messes, it's so easy for me to point to you and say, save me, get me out of this. How come you let me do this? It's your fault, but really, Lord, you are just and you are good and you are righteous all the time. Lord, it's so easy to be like a Saul and to be jealous of what other people have or other people's success or their possessions or their, or their accomplishments or whatever else, even some people's relationship with you. And, and God, I just pray that you would teach us a level of contentment that is unlike anything we have ever experienced personally, that your Holy Spirit would well up in us profound contentment. Lord, that we would actually be able to look at people and rejoice with those who rejoice, suffer with those who suffer, mourn with those who mourn. Lord, that we would even understand that even sometimes your lot for us is exile. And that in those that we would still, like Job, like David, like Jesus, worship you and give you glory. And Father, um, no matter what has come upon us, no matter what season we're in right now, whether or not um, we have been a Saul and we're trying to change the tides, whatever, we want to worship Jesus. So I pray, God, that your spirit would well up um, gratitude as we worship you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians two fifteen and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, like David to Saul. But to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Amen? Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us.